We must ensure that our confession of Christ goes beyond slogan. It must come from a heart that sees Him as the Scriptures show Him to us and believes and trusts. You are the Christ. We're going to see the problems crop up in just the very next verse as Jesus is going to say, all right now, Peter, we've got that much. Now, let me start to teach you about what's going to happen to the Christ. Now that you've got who I am, now let me start to teach you why I've come. I've come to suffer. I've come to die. And then the problems are going to come out. Wait, 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 Jesus. Hang on. (laughs) We're not proclaiming you to be the Christ to be on that path. So let's get you back on the rails before we get off the rails too far. So we know that his confession is a confession that is lacking, should we say, in accurate understanding of who Jesus is. Now, we know that because Peter's understanding of the Messiah is an understanding that was packed, that was replete with ideas of a Messiah who was politically victorious of a Messiah who would rid the land of these Gentiles who were ruling over them and a Messiah who would once again bring glory to Israel. Now, if you have in any length of time been part of the church and have any listened to messages uh, of this topic at all, you have heard this. You have heard that the disciples had this understanding that Jesus was going to be this Messiah who was victorious. You've heard that. We all understand that. We all believe that. But let's just pause a moment and let's just ask the question, is that what the Bible says? Or is that just what we've been told? Because we must be careful. Because this this is pivotal. If Jesus is being proclaimed as the anointed one, and those proclamations of his anointing are fraught with the, the errors of who this Messiah really is and why he's come, then we better be sure of what we're talking about. So does the New Testament tell us that the, the people of Jesus' day were mistaken in who they thought the Messiah was going to be. No, it does not. Instead, what we find when we turn to the New Testament and ask that question, what did people think Messiah was going to be? The answer is there, but it's not there in a concise way. It's not there in so many words, so to speak. So when we turn to the New Testament, what we find is that people's reaction to Jesus is so telling of what their thoughts of Jesus was to be that that helps us to see what their understanding was. So we see this again and again. We see reactions to Jesus. And if we ask the question, why would they react that way? Then the answer says to us, well, it makes sense that they would react that way because their understanding of a Messiah was the understanding of a victorious Messiah. We see this again and again in places like Acts chapter 1. So is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Or the words of James and John when the Samaritan villages reject Jesus. Jesus, you want us, call, you want us to call down fire on this, this village here, right? That, that is coming from an understanding that Messiah would be listened to and obeyed or you'd be destroyed. Or Peter's words to Jesus, you will never wash my feet. Why would he react that way to Jesus? Because his understanding of Messiah was a Messiah that would never kneel and wash feet. You see? And so you kind of put all that together. It's like it's, 
baked in the cake, so to speak, you know? You know what it means to be baked in the cake? When you bake a cake and you know, you, may, you put an egg in the cake batter and you mix it all up and you bake the cake and then you, you take a slice of the cake and you say, where's the egg? What's in there? Well, show it to me. I, I can't, but it's in there. It's, it's just part of it now. Baked in the cake of the New Testament is the perception that when Messiah came, Messiah would be victorious. And we see that by seeing people's reactions when Jesus demonstrated something of humility or something of weakness or something of suffering. So that's what we see in the New Testament. But let's now ask ourselves, is that enough? Can that give us real confidence that the opinions of Jesus were wrong of the day, or the, I should say the, the opinions of Messiah were wrong in the day. And the best place we can see that is to look to what Jews were writing right before Jesus came. So let's look to a passage that comes in the Psalms of Solomon. Who likes the, the Psalms of Solomon? You like to read the Psalms of Solomon? Oh, your pastor is so tricky. He will, he is, you got to watch him. He will, he will sneak up on you because the Psalms of Solomon is not in your Bible. (laughs) You may be thinking the Song of Solomon or the Psalms of David, but the Psalms of Solomon is an apocryphal book. Now, the books of the apocrypha, if you're not familiar with them, they are writings that took place largely between the close of the Old Testament canon and right around the time of Jesus or a little bit later. And so these books, these apocryphal books, you've probably heard some of the names of them. They're the, the books, the, the Maccabean books, the book of Maccabees, Esdras, the books of Esdras, uh, the Shepherd of Hermas, um, Psalms of Solomon, and some others. Now, these are not Scripture. These were written by Jews and largely godly Jews, and they can have some helpful things in them, but they have errors. And so here's the important thing to see is the church has never considered them to be Scripture. They've never considered them to be inspired Scripture, which, by the way, is why in your notes I even put them in a different font. You see, I even protected the font because it's not... I don't want anyone to be confused. You're not looking at Scripture here. You're looking, though, at writings of Jewish people a couple hundred years before the, the arrival of Christ. Now, what they were saying about Messiah at that time will prove very helpful for us, won't it? And here's what they were saying. Look at this passage. See, O Lord, and raise up their king for them, a son of David. There is the messianic title. A son of David. For the proper time that you see God to rule over Israel, your servant. And here it is. And undergird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. Cleanse Jerusalem from the nations that trample it in destruction to expel sinners from the inheritance in wisdom and righteousness to rub out their arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel to crush all their support with an iron rod to destroy lawless nations by the word of his mouth for Gentiles to flee from his face at his threat. And we could go on. There are other places we could see this. There's another quote there from Esdras. We could look at some of the Targum teachings from 100 to maybe the 2nd century, 3rd century after Christ. And we would see a prevailing understanding that Messiah would come and crush the Gentiles. He would crush those who rule over Jerusalem, over Israel, and He would bring victory and glory back to Israel. That is the context in which Jesus lived. 
That was the scuttlebutt of the day. That's what people were talking about. As the Jews were looking for Messiah, that's what was on their mind. And so when Peter declares, you are the Christ, this Christ that he's declaring is necessarily wrapped up in what his culture has taught him to see in the Christ. It's interesting, there was an experiment that was done some years ago that used a a device called stereo opticons. You might know what a stereo opticon is. I would be amazed if anybody knew. I had to look it up myself. So a stereo opticon, you know what stereo means, right? We usually talk about stereo with audio. And so you have one ear that has one sound and another ear that has a little bit different, and that gives you the stereo effect, right? Well, a stereo opticon, opticon has to do with visual, with seeing. And so a stereo opticon is a device that you put on and it will give different images to, diff- to, to different eyes. It'll give one eye, one image, and another eye, another image. And so they did this test. They had all these test subjects from different cultures around the world. And what they wanted to know was, how does culture inform what you see? Because as most of us are aware, your eyes give your signal, give, give your brain one picture, right? Your, your, your brain doesn't walk around seeing two pictures of the world. Your brain walks around seeing one picture of the world because your brain takes two pictures and makes them one. So the, the test was to say, what if we take people from different cultures and we, we put different images on different eyes? What are we going to learn? So they would, they would put this, image, this uh, stereopticon on people and what they found was without fail, Without fail, the person's culture always informed what they saw. For example, they would put the device on an American, and they would show in one eye a baseball player, and in the other eye a bullfighter. And the American would always see the baseball player, because that's what his culture had taught him to see. The Mexican would always see the bullfighter because that's what his culture had taught him to see. And they did this with all kinds of cultures, all kinds of people, and they found that it was invariable. And it had nothing to do with dominant eye, weak eye, because they would switch the images back and forth and get the same results. And what they discovered was, just as your brain takes two images and and makes one of them, so also that one image is informed by the culture in which you were raised. In other words you see what your culture has taught you to see. Now, we know that to be true. That may be surprising to us to hear it put in those terms, but we know that to be true. Just think about hearing. Just think about the the fact that we all know this is true, that you hear sometimes what you want to hear. One of the things that, that is remarkable that I've noticed with all six of our kids as they were learning to read, and they're in those early stages of learning to read when they're struggling through sounding out the words, what always happened was, as they were struggling to sound out the word, their brain supplied the word that they thought would be next. And it had nothing to do sometimes with what the word actually was. Because their brains were telling them what the word should be. And we see this in many areas of life. I can't tell you the number of times that I have... After a message or something, somebody has, has come to me and say, you know, you said this, and that was so profound. That was so insightful. And I'm thinking, I didn't say that. You, you heard something that I didn't say. Because that's the way our brains work. So now, when we come to Peter's confession, Peter's confession, he has seen the Christ. 
But just like the stereopticon, his culture is telling him what the Christ should be. Which, by the way, here's a side note. This principle is one of the reasons that we must be so diligent in studying our scriptures. Because we don't want to know what our culture thinks scriptures should say. We want to know what the scriptures say which is why we must often do so much work to understand the culture to which it was written so that we understand the actual text and not what our culture would think the text says. Okay, but that's a side note. That's a message for another day. Back to Peter. Peter's confession was wrapped up in what his upbringing and his culture had taught him the Christ should look like. And so as he confesses, you are the Christ, he's right. And his proclamation is a glorious statement of faith. Because even thinking that Messiah is going to be this glorious, victorious Messiah, even so, Jesus has not really demonstrated a lot of that, has he? He's demonstrated power. But at every turn, Jesus has avoided political arguments. Remember when they say they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, what do you say about those those people that Herod killed, those Jews that he killed when they were offering their sacrifices? Jesus says, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about your sin. Or they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we got this problem. My, My brother won't share the inheritance with me. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about your need for repentance. Right. So Jesus has avoided at every turn being ensnared in anything political. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, well, I don't want to talk about Caesar. I want to talk about you, and I want to talk about your heart. So Jesus hasn't really given Peter a whole lot to believe in by way of a glorious, victorious Messiah either. So his confession is still a statement of faith. Nevertheless, it's a statement of faith that is uninformed. That it, Well, actually, I shouldn't say uninformed, but informed by the wrong thing, informed by a faulty view of Messiah of a lowly view of Messiah, that he, his first coming is a coming of glory and power. And so this is why Jesus will begin at this point to correct this. So now, here's the, the takeaway for us. Peter's confession got all the right words, right? They got the words right. You are the Christ. In Matthew's account of it, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's 100% theologically correct. But here's an instance in which we see plainly that sometimes the words out of our mouth aren't necessarily revealing the right understanding of the heart. Jesus said your words are a good indicator of your heart, but he didn't say that every word out of your mouth accurately portrays the right heart motive. And this is what we see in Peter's case. He's speaking the right words, but his confession of the Christ is still deficient. We live in a culture and in a time in which knowledge of the truth of Christ, knowledge of the gospel is so prevalent to such a degree that the right words are so easy. And the right words can be spoken literally from any type of heart. Even Jesus acknowledged this. He said there will be many that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not perform many mighty signs? Did we not cast out many demons in your name? He'll say, depart me from me. I never knew you. 
yet they had the right words. And so this is an illustration of how the mouth can speak the right words, but those words can be slogan. And brothers and sisters, our confession of the Christ must go far beyond slogan. It must go far beyond just words. You know, a parakeet can be trained to say you are the Christ. A monkey can be trained to do it in sign language or maybe even write it on a chalkboard. The words themselves mean nothing unless they come from the heart that is rightly informed and believes and trusts upon that as well. The demons themselves will say the same words in Mark's gospel. We know who you are. You are the mighty one. You are the most high God. The words themselves are insufficient. We must ensure that our confession of Christ goes beyond slogan. It goes beyond words that we've been taught our whole life. It must come from a heart that sees Him as the Scriptures show Him to us and believes and trusts. Now let's also notice the necessity of this confession. In John's Gospel in chapter 8, Jesus is going to be enthralled in this discussion with the Pharisees and the discussion is going to be about His identity. And Jesus is going to conclude that that section in verse 24 with these words, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now when Jesus says, die in your sins, that's Bible speak for eternal damnation. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This passage cannot be preached, at least properly, without the application that all of us, I take it, have heard every time this passage is preached or taught, which is the application to say, this is the most important question of your entire existence. Who do you say He is? which is why it's put in the emphatic. You yourself, who do you say? There is no more important question because in Jesus' words, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now to believe that He is the Christ, as we see already and we're going to see over the next two weeks, means much more than just saying the words, and it means much more than just believing in a redefined Jesus. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean less than that. It means more than that, but not less. You must believe that He is the Christ or you will die in your sins. And then finally, finally, the last thing for us to see is just simply this. And that's the blessed condition of the one who confesses. In Matthew's Gospel... Jesus responds with those well-known words, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, you are blessed, Simon. Peter, you are blessed. And why is Peter blessed? Because he has figured all this out? Because he has closely watched Jesus and he's put the pieces together? Jesus says, you are blessed because God has touched you. That was the point last week. The divine touch. Without the divine touch, nothing happens. 
And so that was the point of the, the blind man. That was the point of the, the deaf and mute man. That was the point of the two feedings. And Jesus says it explicitly in Matthew's gospel. Without the divine touch, nothing happens. So what Matthew says explicitly, Mark told us in stories. The deaf man, the blind man. Now Peter's confession. So Mark tells us this in stories. And his stories are telling us the same thing. Without this divine action, without this intervention from God, none of this will become apparent to you. You will see none of this. You will perceive none of this. But with the divine touch, notice what Jesus says. Blessed are you. That proclamation of a benediction upon Peter. Brothers and sisters, we can read that proclamation with a one-to-one correlation to us. Just as Jesus says, you are blessed, Peter, because God has opened your eyes. So also, if God has opened your eyes, Jesus is likewise saying to you, you are blessed. You are blessed because he has opened your eyes to see. He has opened your eyes to perceive. To perceive. 